How many of you hate it when people pick favorites? I don't mean favorite like pizza. I don't mean favorite ice cream. I mean favorite children. Maybe favorite brothers or, or sisters. How many of you, just show of hands, let's get interactive this morning. How many of you had siblings? Okay, how many of you hated it when you felt like your parents picked favorites? You, you put, put them high. Don't be ashamed. Like, I don't want to make my mama mad. My mama's in here. No, I don't, I don't care if your mama's in here. Be bold. Um, I'm an only child, so I was usually the one that people hated. Um, because they're like, well, of course you're your mama's favorite. I'm like, yeah, I'm the only one. Um, but if you're a sibling, I can, I, I've watched, you know, uh, other brothers and sisters, and I've heard them say things like, well, he's going to get away with it because he's mama's favorite. I've heard some of them say, I'm going to get away with it because I'm mama's favorite. <laughs> you know, I've heard some of them say it, um, you know. Uh, even if you didn't have siblings, I'm sure in school you got frustrated. You know, is it teacher's pet? Ever see the teacher's pet? And, and you can say or do the exact same thing they did. And you, you would either get the, the ruler on your knuckles or you would lose your lunch or you'd have to sit at the embarrassing table at, at lunch where they put the people where you... They used to have this thing called silent table because they couldn't figure out how to punish kids. Um, and they would put them at the table where you weren't allowed to talk. And I was like, you know, that, that was a great thing because it was a double, it was a punishment for them and it was great for the rest of us because we didn't have to listen to them. Um, but you could do the exact same thing they did and you would get punished and they would just, the teacher would just go, now stop that. Like, of course that happened to them. The teacher picks favorites. We assume sometimes in our darkest moments that maybe just maybe, because everybody else picks favorites in the world. Because let's be honest, we do. Sometimes it's just for a minute, but we, we don't always treat everybody equitably. We have favorites. And those favorites might shift, but we don't always treat everybody equitably. We pick out things that we like about people or, or places or things, and we treat people differently. And we assume, because people do that, that God does that as well. And that can lend, lead to one of two things. That can lead to pride from thinking that you're, favor, you're God's favorite and you can do things that maybe other people can't do. Um, or that can lead to depression. That you look around and you look at everybody else and you go, oh my gosh, God, has, they've got to be God's favorite. They get all these blessings and then I don't have any of them. And why has God picked them out to be his favorite and not me? I want to preach this morning very clearly from the text, explicitly from the text. Y'all, God doesn't pick favorites. God does not have favorite men and women, boys and girls, that he loves any more than any other boys and girls. God does not pick favorites. So if you will turn to Galatians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10 with me, I want us to, to read that this morning. Stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in verse 6, and we're going to go down through verse 10. Galatians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. 
On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Father, I pray that as we study this word today, we will come to a new appreciation of the fact that you love all of us equally. Nobody gets special treatment. Um, and that you are not a God who picks favorites. That's a human thing. Um, and it's not always a good thing, but you don't do that to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I titled the sermon, Picking Favorites or Not, uh, for that very reason that we look at God, and sometimes we do what the Greeks did with their gods, and rather than accepting the fact that we're made in God's image and something has gone wrong, we remake God in our image. And we expect Him to behave like us. We expect Him to do the same things that we do when that's not the case. We might pick favorites, but God does not. So I want us to see three truths about how God interacts with, with people down here uh, and, and what we can learn about how He loves us uh, through that. So first, I want us to see that God doesn't pick favorites based on worldly qualities. What do I mean a worldly quality? I mean things like maybe somebody is extremely good at public speaking. Maybe somebody's really good at art. Maybe somebody's really good at math. Maybe somebody's academically smart. Maybe somebody is really good with money. Those people drive me nuts. You ever seen, they could take a penny outside and plant it, and it would grow a tree that the leaves were $100 bills. And I, I don't understand it. You know, there, there are people like that who just have these talents. And you look at them and you say, I don't, why... Uh, of course God's going to use them. They're his favorites. They've got all these gifts and he likes them better because they can do this. That's wrong. And we shouldn't think that way. I want us to look at verse 6 to begin with. and Let's give a quick uh, bring up to date here uh, before we get to verse 6. We're in the book of Galatians. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Galatia because he cannot believe how quickly they have left the accurate teaching he left them with and have started believing these false teachers who have come in and they're preaching another gospel. And it seems like their gospel is a, is a gospel of works. In other words, that God is going to save you if you try your best and do a really good job. Uh, for them, this would be obeying the Jewish law. But there are plenty of preachers who preach this today. That, you know, God's going to love you and you're going to go to heaven if you die as long as you do your best to keep the Ten Commandments and don't be mean to anybody and don't lie to your mama. You know, that's, that's kind of their gospel of, of do good. And Paul's furious with them that they have started believing this and they have left behind the truth of the gospel that he taught them when he was there the first time. And he doesn't really have anything nice to say about them. He says, you know, I'm not even sure that you're saved. Is kind of what he's getting at. If this is what you believe, I'm not even sure you're saved because you, you don't understand the good news of Jesus Christ, that he's done everything for you. There's nothing left for you to do to please God. If you don't understand that today, by the way, I would say if you follow a gospel of good works, you know, I try hard. I do my best to obey. You know, I, I don't 
I don't want to hurt people, you know. I, I just try really hard, and I hope that when I stand in front of God at the end, I'll have done enough. If that's your gospel, you're not a Christian. If that's your gospel, you're not saved, because that's not a gospel. That's just, I'm going to try really hard, and you're going to fail, because you can't be perfect. That's what Paul tells the Galatians. This is a false gospel. It's not going to save you. And let me explain to you, this is Paul, let me explain to you kind of the background of what you're falling into. And Paul starts telling us, starts out the story of his conversion, why you can believe him, why you can trust him as, as opposed to whoever these other people are. But then now in this passage, he has gone down to, he's gone up to Jerusalem from Antioch because folks have come in telling the, the church at Antioch where he was to begin with that you've got to obey the mosaic law and you've got to be circumcised and all this stuff if you're going to be saved well paul goes up to jerusalem with barnabas and, and titus to settle this and when he gets up there he's proven right that these folks agree with him and that's what we're going to see today and paul is saying i want you to know how this trip to jerusalem went so he goes up to see those who were apostles before him and that's where we pick up today in verse 6 now, verse 6 has an interesting structure that I want to point out before we start breaking it down. Uh, if you read verse 6, how many of you, your translations got parentheses or, or a hyphen in it? Uh, if you read it in the New King James, it reads this way. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. Can you see that spot kind of in the middle that's set off even by parentheses or a hyphen? Uh, I want us to deal with that that's in the parentheses first. And then once we've dealt with that, I'm going to read what's outside it together as one unit. Because that's how it should be understood. That what's in the parentheses is kind of its own thing. And then the rest of the sentence around it is also one thing. Uh, so let's look at this in the parentheses. Paul says, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. This is pretty strong language from Paul to talk about these other apostles because that's who he's talking about. If you look down in verse 9, Paul actually identifies these people who seem to be of high reputation, they seem to be pillars, as James and Cephas, which is another word for Peter, and John. He's talking about the apostles when he says these men who seem to be something. And then he turns around and says, well, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. That seems like pretty strong language from Paul toward these other apostles, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, how would you feel if, you know, you know maybe, to you, maybe to your children, okay? Maybe you're a parent and you, you've given your children advice and you find out that your children are talking to other people and they said, well, you know, those, those folks back at the house I grew up in, whatever they were, it doesn't make a difference to me. Here's what they told me to do. How would you feel if they said that? Is that what Paul is trying to do? I, I don't think so. For, for a couple of reasons. I don't think Paul is trying to insult them. I don't really think he's trying to denigrate them at all, specifically since the fact that they agree with him ends up being the main part of his argument. The whole point of verses 6 through 10 is that these folks are on the same page with him. They agree. 
So what is Paul doing when he says, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. Think about the advantages that the previous apostles, the apostles before Paul, might have had in the eyes of maybe a looker, an onlooker from the outside. You know, these are men who had walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. These are people who had been part of the Christian movement since the very beginning. In my favorite advantage they have over Paul, they were not former Christian killers. Okay? You remember Paul's background before he got saved? That he was sanctioned by the high priests in Jerusalem to hunt down Christians and drag them bound from their worship services out to face trial and many of them killed. Paul was the one holding the coats of the men who were throwing the rocks at the first Christian martyr. You know, so Paul's kind of got that black mark in the ledger next to him, you would think. And then finally, these guys are stationed in Jerusalem, which is going to play a big part in this conflict because these false teachers who came in came from Jerusalem when they showed up at Antioch. So when you put two and two together, here's what it sounds like these men were doing, these false teachers. These false teachers roll into Antioch from Jerusalem and go, well, guys, you know you've got to be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law in order to be saved. And they're like, well, that's not what Paul told us. That's not what the apostle Paul told us. And they go, oh, <laughs> Paul, of course Paul told you that. Well, let, let us set you straight because we're from Jerusalem. Well, who else is in Jerusalem? Well, the calculus is running in their head. Well, the rest of the apostles are in Jerusalem. So what, what, what do we do? And they go, no, Paul's wrong. You don't need to listen to him. You need to listen to us. We're from Jerusalem. We're from the city where the rest of the apostles are. We've been, we're highly educated Jewish Mosaic Law scholars. And you need to trust what we're saying other than this random guy who, by the way, used to kill Christians. You're going to listen to him instead of us? Why do you think Paul spent the whole first part of the book of Galatians depending his apostleship? They are using these other apostles' backgrounds, which, by the way, they, they got these apostles' names all in their mouth, and the other apostles have had nothing to do with these guys. They haven't endorsed these guys. They haven't sent them. They're just using them to kind of blow up their own influence. And Paul turns around and says... I don't care who they are. That does not mean that the gospel I'm teaching you is false just because I'm not them. Paul could have easily, the, the early church father Ambrose turns around and he says, Paul could have done this. He said, oh, you want to say they got qualifications? I don't. Because they're in Jerusalem, they were with Jesus, they've been part of the movement since the beginning, and they should, you should listen, they should listen to you because you came from the same town as them instead of me. I could just as easily say, well, they're dumb fishermen. Couldn't Paul have said that? Think about Paul's background. Paul is educated. Paul had the equivalent of a PhD of his day. From a well-respected teacher, everybody knew his name. I mean, he could argue the, the Jewish law with the best of them. 
Paul could have easily said, well, why would you listen to the dumb fishermen instead of me? But that's not what I'm getting at. Paul said the whole point is whatever they were, it doesn't make a difference to me. Whether they were fishermen, whether they're in Jerusalem, whether they've been part of this from the beginning, the fact of the matter is that just because they have these things in their background doesn't mean that they are any more usable by God than me. It doesn't mean that God has spoken to them in a way that is going to supersede what He said to me. Our Gospels are the same Gospel. And the reason He went up to Jerusalem was to prove it. That God did not pick favorites. And then He says, of all things, for those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Like, oh boy, well, that, how, how are you going to spend this as not being insulting? Believe it or not, and y'all, you can mark this on your calendar. If you have a calendar, pull this out and mark it, because not often do I say it. I think the New International Version got this, the, the right, got this right. More than just about any other translation. In the New International Version, it reads this way. As for those who were held in high esteem... Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Now, I'll full disclosure. If you decide to go home and learn Greek and look at the Greek Bible, you're not going to find the word for message there. So why did the NIV put it there? What has Paul gone up to Jerusalem to get straightened out? It's the message. Nobody was debating at that time Paul's apostleship. That, that's the issue in Galatians. The issue when he went up to Jerusalem was the nature of the gospel. So he goes up there and he goes, these men who were highly reputed, you know, let's, let's, let's put me aside for a second. Y'all might debate me. You're not going to debate James and Peter and John. He said, these men, they didn't add anything to my message. What I preached to you, they were preaching. They didn't give anything extra. What's the point? Paul looks at these false teachers who are pointing out all the reasons why Peter, James, and John, and by extension themselves, they're better to be trusted. They're more usable by God. They've been here longer. They're better educated. They've got better name recognition. They're in a better place. They're in Jerusalem. They're not over here in, in Galatia. They're not over here in Antioch. You know, you need to listen to us because we've got all of the qualifications that make us prime servants of God. But Paul turns around and says, Y'all, God doesn't pick favorites. God doesn't care that they're in Jerusalem and I'm in Antioch. God doesn't care that they've been there since the beginning and he called me as one born out of time, you know, born late. You know, it doesn't matter that they got there before me. You know, it doesn't matter whether I've got the PhD and they're fishermen. It has nothing to do with any of these men's personal qualifications. It has to do with whether or not they're accurately conveying what God had to say to the church. And Paul's point is, whether I'm educated and they're fishermen, or whether I'm in Antioch and they're in Jerusalem, or whether, you know, 
they're Jews and the majority of people in our church are Gentiles. None of those qualities matter. What matters is faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So how does that apply to us in 2000? I almost said 2017. How does that apply to us in 2018 in Stapleton? Do you know that I, a, a few weeks ago, I was preaching out of Hebrews. And I pulled the commentary off my shelf, and I was like, okay, I love this guy. I'm going to read his commentary, and I'm going to learn some things, and I'm going to prepare for this sermon. And I opened the commentary, and I'm reading, and I love him. He's, he's, a, he's a, a Bible-believing, Orthodox and belief Christian when I say Orthodox, I don't mean denominationally. I mean, he's, he's definitely a Baptist. I mean, he's, he would square with us on 99.999% of everything. But I started reading the commentary, and I said, you know what? I don't think he's got this right. It doesn't make sense to me. But I felt bad because I'm like, this guy's got more degrees than a thermometer. And I don't. I got, I got two. I got my, my bachelor's, and I got my MDiv. This guy runs a college. What do I do? And I called one of my pastoral mentors and he said, you want, you want me to tell you something? He said, I disagree with him all the time. And I love him. But just because somebody's from a bigger city doesn't mean that they have a monopoly on truth. Just because somebody is pastor of an 8,000 member church in Atlanta doesn't mean they have more spiritual authority than any of us. Not bashing Atlanta. But sometimes you can look at somebody coming from a big place and give them authority that that big place doesn't afford them. Sometimes you can look at somebody maybe that's got an incredible talent. I've heard horror stories of churches that made successful businessmen deacons because they were good at managing a business so they figured they'd be good at managing a church. Never mind the fact that biblically deacons are not managers, they're servants. But they made them deacons because they figured if they're good at managing a business, they'll be good at managing a church. That rather than going with what God said in His Word, they looked at human talent and said, wow, that person's blessed by God. Let's, let's put them in leadership. Rip a church apart. God doesn't play favorites based on earthly qualifications. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to go back and I'm going to read this parable, but I'm not really going to have to exegete all that much because the parable explains itself. The kingdom of heaven, start in verse 1 of chapter 20, and the last four verses are on your handout. The kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go to the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. This is the end of the work day. This is like four o'clock. You clock out at five. This is like the master of the vineyard going out at four o'clock. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, you go to the vineyard too. 
And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. That's a day's pay. That's what a denarius is. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Do you know that it's not a qualification for you? Don't shortchange what God could do in a church or a ministry because God calls somebody that hasn't been there a long time. It's like, well, I've been in this church for 20 years and I'm waiting on God to use me and this person got saved last week and He's calling them to do something I've wanted to do for years. You know what you ought to do? Cheer and clap that God's moving. But God called this person to a ministry that I really want to do. Cheer and clap that God's moving. That He's doing something. Because when we, when we say, God ought to give me that gift. God ought to do this with me. What you're doing is you're saying, I want God to favor me. I want the glory of doing that. I want to do that. Well, really what we ought to do is we ought to just be happy that God is calling somebody to grow His kingdom and see men, women, boys, and girls saved. You know, I want nothing more than to see people saved at Stapleton Baptist Church. Y'all, I, I seriously, that, that, that's my dream. And do you know what I would do if revival broke out down the street at Wren's Baptist and they had 200 people saved over the next month? I would probably weep for joy. You know what they would do if that happened here? Same thing. Now, I, I pick a local church not because I think there's anything underlying between the two, but because generally our, our close relationships are kind of like brothers and sisters that they can bring out our darker side too. It happens to pastors as well as it can happen to people. Did the worry of maybe a little bit of jealousy creep into your heart when I said that? If no, praise God. If it did, then the Holy Spirit has pointed out something in you. God does not pick favorites. Whether it's big city, little city, 
young, old, black, white, tall, short, rich, poor. God doesn't play favorites. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, don't, don't look at somebody and say, They're, they're young, they're old, they're, they don't dress right. God can't use them, they don't dress right. You know, I'm waiting for the archaeologist to pull out Jesus' three-piece suit that he preached the Sermon in the Mount in. <laughs> you know, it's not going to happen. God doesn't pick favorites. That God can do what he wants with what belongs to him and what belongs to him. Everything. So just be happy when he moves. Paul said it makes a difference to me. They didn't add anything to my message. So God doesn't pick favorites based on worldly qualities, but he does pick specific people for specific tasks. Y'all, that's not God playing favorites. That's God organizing his church well. Look at verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised... For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So we've got this whole uh, agreement really between them that Paul and Barnabas are going to go to the Gentiles, and Peter is going to lead the effort to the Jews. Now, does that mean that there are separate Gospels? One for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. Absolutely not. Paul was very explicit in the first chapter of Galatians, there is no Gospel other than the one I preach. And he already turned around and said they didn't add anything to my message. This is the same message being preached simultaneously in two different places by two different sets of teachers. Paul and Barnabas in Antioch and James, Peter, and John in Jerusalem. And they're getting together. They knock their heads together. Hey, we're teaching the same thing. But you're bearing fruit amongst Gentiles and we're bearing fruit amongst Jews. So what are we going to do? We're going to divide the labor. You're going to focus your efforts where God is having you bear fruit. You're going to focus on the Gentiles. God is bearing fruit amongst us with the Jews. So let's specialize. You do this, we'll do this. Now I want you to look at two important points in these passages. One, they perceived the grace that was given to Paul. They perceived the grace that was given to Paul. Y'all, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's, it's God giving you something that you do not deserve. And if there's anybody in the world who didn't deserve ministry, it was Paul. If there's anybody in the world that you would think would be the last person called to minister, called to be a, a preacher of the gospel, it was Saul of Tarsus. 
Christian murderer extraordinaire. Bounty hunter par excellence. And what did God do? God called him apart to be a minister of the gospel and a very fruitful one at that. And the rest of the apostles see this and they notice the activity of God in his life and they don't get mad. They don't say, well, man, get him out of the way. We need to get somebody reputable in Antioch. No. They noticed that God was working in Paul's life. They saw that grace. They saw the incredible gift he had been given. An apostleship aimed straight at the Gentiles. And they rejoiced in it. And they give Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Rather than it saying, okay, we're going to put you through Jerusalem Seminary. We're going to teach you how to turn these Gentiles into God-fearing Jews. You know, they, they didn't do that. They extended them the right hand of fellowship and said, keep on keeping on, brother. We're not going to interfere with you. That God is working in your, in your life and in your ministry exactly the way he intends to, the same as he's doing here. So we want to shake your hand, tell you that we are praying for you, we love you, and we are happy that God's kingdom is moving in Antioch. Right hand of fellowship. So out of this whole section, how do we apply this? Yeah, our culture is obsessed with the idea that equality means sameness. Equality does not mean sameness. You know, I believe that my wife and I are equals. I also believe we are not the same. I believe that my task in the church and my Sunday school teacher's task in this church are equal. They're just not the same. I believe that my Sunday school teacher's task and my deacon's task in this church are equal. They're just not the same. Say, so, well, wait a minute. There are special qualifications. Yes, there are special qualifications. But those special qualifications don't make me greater than anybody else in the church. Those special qualifications don't make deacons greater than anybody else in the church. Those special qualifications don't make Sunday school teachers greater than the people in their class. That just, those qualifications are there for us to be able to serve in a God-honoring way, not to provide us status. You know, I don't have... I'm not a saint in the Catholic sense. I don't have some store of merit that I build up that I have special access to God that the rest of you don't have. I'm a pastor, not a priest. There's a difference. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody stands above anybody else. I don't stand... In fact, I would say based on the length of time some of y'all have been walking, walking with Jesus, y'all's heads probably a little bit... Y'all stand probably a little bit taller than me. I'm not here because I'm a special man. I'm here because God's called me to this task. That doesn't mean that... I'm greater than anybody here. 
But each of our tasks that God has called us to, called us to specific tasks. He's called each of us to serve Him in different places. 1 Corinthians 12, 15-19 If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? When I was still a youth pastor, I used this passage as a really goofy illustration. And I said, I want you to imagine a giant eyeball sitting in the middle of the road. I mean, it's like a huge, like a human-sized eyeball standing in the middle of the road. And it sees the car coming. What is it going to do about it? Nothing. It doesn't have feet. It can't go anywhere. It's going to get hit by the car and die. What about a big old giant ear in the middle of the road? It can hear the car coming. Where's it going to go? It's not going to do anything. What if you had the strongest pair of feet and legs in the middle of the road and the car was coming? What's it going to do? Nothing. It doesn't know the car's coming. Your body needs all of the parts that God has put in it. That's how it functions. Unsurprisingly, God seems to have made me a mouth. That's the majority of my work, is it not? I stand behind the pulpit and I preach the Word of God. I can't do my job without speaking. You know there are plenty of people in this church who do their job without speaking? There are plenty of people in this church who do their job with these. And with with these. Now that that doesn't mean that those of us who do our jobs with our mouth don't, don't use our feet and our hands to love people, but my job is not... I'm I'm equal to the rest of you. The equality does not equal sameness. Our jobs can be different. Our callings can be different. And I urge you, here's your application. Find where God's calling you and don't spend your time saying, if I don't have this gift, if I don't have this calling, I'm not contributing anything to the kingdom. I feel worthless because I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I feel horrible because I'm not a pastor. I feel horrible because I'm not teaching Bible study. Well, that might not be what God's calling you to. God might be calling you to shut in ministry. God might be calling you to work with the women's ministry. God might be calling you to work with the men's ministry. God might be calling you to serve on a committee. God might be calling you to go get in that nursery. I got a real cute baby down there just waiting on you. God might be calling you to do that. You know, we joke at the pastor's meeting all the time. You know, we pray all the time for God to send children to our churches. And this is not an accusation. I'm just telling you what we joke about as pastors amongst ourselves. We pray all the time for God to send children to our churches. And God might say no because we already full of them. What do I mean by that? I mean that God's been telling 
God might have been telling some of us for years, I've got a task I'm calling you to, and we do like kids and go, I don't want to. That's not what I want to do. I want to do something else. Give me a different job. Give me a different chore. What if God is calling you to something right now and He's just waiting on you to say yes? Maybe He's been waiting on you to say yes for years. You can't outwait Him, I promise. He ain't got nothing but time. And He's got a lot more of it than we do. Equality does not equal sameness. You have, if you are a believer, you have a task within this church. And let me, this just came upon me, and I will say it because I feel like it's appropriate. If you're in the room and you're not a believer, let me caution you against something. These same people, these false teachers who came in touting their education, touting their qualifications, why they deserve to be listened to. They were very persuasive speakers. They had duped the whole church. Okay? They had all the worldly gifts that you could possibly imagine. And you know what? They were lost and dying and on their way to hell. Let me caution you, a lost person maybe that's in this church that looks around and says, I don't need this. I'm, I'm well educated. I don't need the church. The church is a crutch. No, sir. The church is a wheelchair. A crutch implies that you've got a little bit of strength on your own and you just need some help. A wheelchair implies you cannot move your legs. The church is not a crutch to me. The church is my wheelchair because I cannot move without Jesus. And if you think religion is a crutch and you don't need it, you got more to offer the church than the church has got to offer you, let me suggest to you, you are dead and you need life and we have it. And you can have it too. Don't spend your time worrying about, well, I've got, I've got more to offer this church than this church has to offer me. I'm gifted. I'm qualified. You're dead. And I want you to have life. And I want you to have it abundantly. But what you have to do is you have to lay down your pride. And you have to lay down your appraisal of your worldly gifts. And say maybe, just maybe, there's something to that little country preacher up there telling me that, that God's got more for me than I have for him. For those of you who are Christians... Find your place in this church and serve. Well, Josh, I don't know if I can. You can. You're alive, aren't you? If you're alive, God's not done with you. Find where he wants you to serve. And if you're alive and you're not serving, are you really alive? God does pick, pick people for specific tasks. That doesn't make them his favorites. And then finally, God doesn't care about one group more than another. And we'll close out with this. Look at verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very, eager, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, this seems silly. Like, why in the world did we go from talking about Jews and Gentiles, excuse me, to the poor? What did this have to do with, with mercy ministry? Where is this coming from? 
Well, this is from uh, the New American Commentaries from Timothy George. He says, Paul and Barnabas were asked to remember the poor, a shorthand expression for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. From its earliest days, the Jerusalem church faced a condition of grinding poverty, as can be seen from the dispute over widows receiving sufficient food and the practice of sharing all things in common to care for the needy. And that's in Acts 4, 32-35 and Acts 6, verses 1-4. through A land of soil deprivation and poor irrigation, Judea was also hard hit in this period of history by famine, war, and overpopulation. To all this must be added the ravishing of the church and the persecutions directed by Paul and other leaders of the Jewish religious community. So chronic was the economic deprivation of the Judean Christians that they became known collectively as the poor. This is not just the general poor. This is the church in Judea. What the apostles are telling Paul to do, the other apostles, is they're saying, we're extending the right hand of fellowship for you to go to the Gentiles and us to go to the Jews. The one thing that we're asking is that the rest of the body doesn't forget that we're suffering over here. Please don't take and insulate yourselves from the rest of Christianity and say, we'll take care of ourselves, they take care of them. No, please don't do that, Paul. Please don't separate the church into two halves. Keep us united, even though you're going to one group of people and we're going to another. Y'all, that's a message that the church in general needs to hear today. Say, well, we minister here and they minister there. We minister to these people, they minister to those people. We were talking in Sunday school. Do you know that South Korea sends missionaries to the United States because of our state of lostness? We don't usually think of ourselves as the poor, do we? Spiritually, though, our country is. Turn on the news. Don't think that just because God has put us down in one specific location surrounded by one group of people that he intends for us to wall ourselves off and only minister to those people. said it before, I'll say it again. Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in our country. We work with people of different races and different languages. We go to the movies with different people, different races and languages. We go to the store with different races and languages, but all of a sudden on Sunday morning, we divide ourselves out by skin color. What in the world, y'all? Just because we're in an area where we're predominantly this shade in this building doesn't mean that God has not called us to care about the other people around us. It almost feels like I'm walking on eggshells anytime I talk about race just because of the climate in the country about that. But if we can't talk about it here, where can we? You know, the church ought to be where healing comes from. It ought not to be affected by the disease. Acts chapter 10, verses 28 and then 34 through 35 
This is Peter talking to the folks in Cornelius' house. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company or go, go to one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. That we are not set apart to only reach one group of people. God has called us to care about all the people around us. Black, white, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, near, far, English, Spanish, German, Lithuanian, Arabic, Whoever's around us, that's who we're taking the gospel to. And finally, in Jonah, the first verse that popped into my mind when I read this. Y'all know the story of Jonah? God tells Jonah, hey, I want you to go tell Nineveh that in 40 days I'm going to overthrow them because of their wickedness. Jonah doesn't even tell him no. Jonah just gets up and walks the other direction. God says go right, Jonah goes left. When Jonah goes left, Jonah goes down into the water, into a giant fish. And Jonah goes, oh, please, God, oh, don't kill me. Please spit me out. Please don't kill me. So God, fish, spit him out. But he's on the shore. God tells him again, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to tell them in 40 days I'm going to overthrow them. So what does Jonah do this time? He goes to Nineveh because he's not on a boat anymore. What's going to eat him on land? Probably not something big enough that's going to spit him out again. So he goes to Nineveh and he preaches and wonder of wonders, Jonah, this Jewish prophet, walks into Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, who had did things so heinous that I will not relate them because there are children in the room. Go home and read the things that Assyria did to people that they occupied and went to war against. It's horrific. And they had done this to Israel. These pagan people, from the king all the way down to the cows, rip their garments, weep, fast, repent, and turn from their evil ways. And Jonah sits up on the side of a mountain and says, See, God, this is why I didn't want to preach. I didn't want to preach because I knew that you would do something silly like move in their hearts and cause them to repent and they've caused us enough trouble and I don't like them so much that I actually wanted them to die and go to hell. That's what Jonah wanted. Jonah said, God, I didn't want to preach your word because I was afraid you might save them. They done destroyed my society enough. They done hurt our economy enough. They done killed enough of our kids. They done taken enough of our women and children away. They done ruined our worship. They've done everything they can. All they've done is ruined the world that we lived in, that we enjoyed so much, and I wanted them to die and go to hell. That's why I didn't want to preach to them. Because I knew you were good, and you'd forgive them, and you'd change their hearts. So God gives him an illustration, and then God asks this pointed question to end the book. And should I not pity Nineveh, 